This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, historian and author Liam Byrne joined me to talk about his new book, Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party, 1876 to 1921. Then, finally, marine biologist Sarah Laverick joined me to talk about her book, Through Ice and Fire, The Adventures, Science and People Behind Australia's Famous Icebreaker, Aurora Australis. I am really delighted now to have with me Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we're going to be giving you an update on the latest in federal politics and talking about some of the most important issues um, that have been making the news, and uh, it's going to be a pretty interesting one, I think, and there's a lot going on um, in terms of a number of inquiries looking into the government as well in terms of their JobKeeper plans. Um, their COVID-19 response, but we're particularly going to start with um, some very important issues. Let's start, actually, I'm going to welcome Ben now and we'll get into the Black Lives Matter protests. Hey there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Got the heating on? Bit of a chilly start. It's a tiny bit cold. (laughs) So, Ben. Um, So, yeah, yeah, you wanted to talk about... Um, the weekend's protests. So um, I do. they were obviously very, very important. Um, I think um, the, the level of the, the Australian marching was historic. Uh, this is certainly the largest anti-racism protest in Australia since the Springbok tour of the 1970s. Um, so it's a historic event in Australia, and you saw the size of the crowds, particularly in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, I think spoke to the resonance of this issue for many urban Australians. So I think a um, very, very significant event indeed. And what was really interesting was to see the differing approaches between the states as well, with New South Wales um, dragging their feet and not wanting the protest to go ahead. And a very, very last minute appeal um, was basically uh, made them successful, meant that the protest could actually happen legally because the... um, the protesters were taken to court to say you can't actually have this protest now and they're saying, no, we need to have the protest. There was a lot going on on that Saturday afternoon around 2 o'clock and, and a bit before, a lot of argy-bargy around whether people should um, go ahead even if it was deemed by the courts to be illegal. What are your thoughts around New South Wales' decision to, to push back against this kind of um, protesting and demonstration? Um, I think the protest placed all of the states in a bit of a difficult situation. On the one hand, they've been saying for months now that uh, people have to stay home, to isolate, to keep 1.5 metres and to try and slow the spread of coronavirus. On the other hand, you've got what appears to be a mass groundswell of public opinion and a big march plan, the protesters wanting to go ahead with it despite the risks to health. So all the states really had a big bit of a difficult uh, decision to make. Um, In Victoria, the decision was to sort of let it go ahead. Um, In New South Wales, they decided to try and stop it. Um, And it was, as you say, a last-minute court challenge uh, to the New South Wales decision to not permit the protest, to not give it a protest permit. 
and that was overturned by a, a court injunction. Um, so that's very interesting. And, of course, the, um, the march went ahead in Sydney. Um, but it was marred later in the day by um, some pretty brutal police action at Central Station where um, a large number of protesters were kettled, that is, hemmed in by police and then pepper sprayed. And there's, there's really, we really haven't got to the bottom of that, of why that happened and why the police felt the need to do that. Yeah, it, watching the footage, it really wasn't clear why that did occur. It was kind of out of the blue. And there wasn't a whole lot of room for the protesters to move in the space that they were actually in. I think it was a, a highly dangerous and irresponsible action by New South Wales Police, um, and I'm still a bit mystified as to why it happened. Um, but I, I think it speaks to a different policing culture in New South Wales and perhaps a different leadership, much more uh, law and order style government up there and, and a much stronger backing of police prerogative. Um, and as we've seen in the United States, uh, these are the things that seem to lead to um, police crackdowns, police actions. Yeah, exactly. And I know that the many issues at the Black Lives Matters Matter protests um, were, you know, very diverse. In it wasn't just about um, the death of George Floyd. It was obviously very much about uh, Australia's situation with systemic racism and uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And we saw um, a number of signs referring to 432 deaths that were known to have happened uh, in custody um, since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in 1991, um, and that figure has since gone up to 434. So, you know, these are really important issues, and we've seen Scott Morrison come out and downplay this and say that, um, oh, we don't want to import these issues from America, it's not the same in Australia, and we're getting a lot of, um, I guess, tension arising over the uh, government's willingness to admit Australia's problems with racism, particularly um, against its First Nations peoples. What are your thoughts on the federal government's um, position and how they've been responding to these protests over the weekend? Oh, I think for the federal government, they've been uh, they've made their views pretty clear. Um, the, the, I think Morrison wants to try and stand with the silent majority or what he thinks is the silent majority on this uh, and to try and throw shade on the protests and call them an American protest. But of course, you know, we have an endemic racism problem in this country. This country was founded, literally founded, on the principles of white supremacy. One of the very first acts of parliament for the federal parliament, of course, was the White Australia um, immigration policy. So um, it's a little bit rich for us to say that there's no problem here. And, of course, the number of deaths in custody. Even recently, I mean, you know, this is a problem that's ongoing in our country, Um We've just had uh, the inquest into Tanya Day's death in Victoria, which um, revealed systemic racism within uh, the Victorian police. So it's a problem here and now, and I think the protesters have every right to make their voice heard. Absolutely. And I think it's even more surprising and, well, galling for anyone to think that if you have um, 432 Aboriginal deaths in custody, surely there would be some sort of um, mechanism to hold police to account, and yet uh, no one has been charged for these um, these deaths. 
Yeah, that's correct. An excellent article by the wonderful Indigenous journalist Amy McGuire over the weekend in the Saturday paper. She points out there cannot be 432 victims and no perpetrators. And I think that gets to the heart of the issue here. Mm. Police are very bad at investigating themselves. We've seen cover-ups galore across many police services in Australia. Um, there's a well-known corruption problem in certain parts of the Australian police services. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's definitely a problem here. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, um, that there's no doubt that it's well past time that Australia came to a reckoning with the systemic entrenched racism in our community and especially in our law enforcement agencies. Mm, and we have seen some of those um, really important ideas that were that stemmed from the Uluru Statement of the Heart. They haven't been acted upon by the federal government. And um, I wonder where we're at in terms of the political debate around those ideas, um, having a voice to parliament, for example, um, where is Labor at? Are they advocating for these changes um, or have we really just kind of walked away from them for now? Um, so, yes, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was rejected by Malcolm Turnbull. You know, I think one of the worst decisions of his entire prime ministership, it was um, particularly peremptory in the way in which he simply dismissed the entire process. Um we we haven't really got a firm position from Labor on this. They've, they've there's a bit of sort of sitting on the fence. But obviously Labor um, has some very strong Indigenous uh, political leaders. So you've got Malandiri McCarthy um, has been has been vocal about this issue. Um, so I, I, obviously um, Labor has a much stronger commitment to reconciliation um, and to the Uluru process uh, than than the government. The government has rejected it outright. Mm. Um, ben, a big change has occurred. We saw an announcement last night around the childcare um, system and the subsidies that were in place. Um, we had seen during the coronavirus pandemic, the federal government announced that um, childcare would be free and that was uh, in order to allow people, particularly essential workers, to keep working, um, but also that people falling on financial hard times would be able to still afford childcare and still afford um, to be able to do some form of work. Um, and this is now, interestingly and disturbingly, been uh, wound back. The announcement has been made that they will um, go back to the previous arrangements from the 13th of July. People will need to continue to pay fees with some level of government subsidy, but not an entire subsidy. Um, and this has really brought a lot of criticism with this move because, as we've seen and we, we have discussed on this program, um, the coronavirus pandemic has certainly hit women, in particular young women, um, losing their jobs at higher rates and losing hours than men. And um, this has obviously been an, an issue before the coronavirus pandemic happened in terms of women's workforce participation and uh, enabling them to be able to participate as they choose. So what are your thoughts? in terms of the government's decision and I think a lot of people might be perhaps confused at their rationale given um, that we don't really seem to be out of the woods yet and uh, that we're at really you know high unemployment levels and technically we are in a recession. We are more than technically in a recession Amy, uh, we, are, we are fundamentally in a recession. Um, we're actually still on the way down 
and I think that the depth of the recession has yet to be reached. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a decision in keeping with the federal government's uh, strange gender bias that has appeared in its stimulus policies. Uh, you know, um, uh, home renovations, jobs for blokes in high-vis, good. Mm. Uh Childcare workers, uh, job keeper for people working in the early childhood sector, apparently bad, apparently about to stop. Um, you know, so there's not a whole lot of reason or logic to this one. Um, Scott Morrison said JobKeeper was going to run for six months. Suddenly he's winding it back in July. Um, there's not a lot of justification for this, um, except basically that the, the government doesn't want to fund early childhood in the way it's been doing for the last three months. Um, and I think that's part of the, the Morrison government's uh, deep reluctance, uh, a deep discomfort with some of the social democracy that they cooked up in March on a whim to try and keep the economy going. Um, I actually think on a moral level, the idea of free child childcare is something that upsets the Morrison government um, and maybe even Dan Tien and Scott Morrison themselves. Uh, that, that's my best explanation for what's going on here. Yeah, it is really shocking to see this and I think it will have really massive uh, effects given that the childcare industry and childcare workers are very much uh, low paid, underpaid and um, they are disproportionately women. So we will see, you know, effects not just on working women um, needing to access childcare so they can work, but also the impact on uh, women who are childcare workers. Um, and that's just one sector that we're seeing um, some effects uh, in and it is quite disturbing. We also did see another sector um, and some further developments that we've been talking about on um, in regards to the tertiary education sector. We saw that Latrobe University staff have decided that they will collectively uh, take a pay cut to reduce the number of job losses at their university. We also, as we mentioned last week, saw Deakin University announce a huge amount of um, job losses and job cuts. Uh, where are we at at the moment in terms of the tertiary education sector and that ongoing battle, um, given that they did not qualify for JobKeeper? Um, well, same old, same old there, Amy. Um, there's no bailout for the universities from the Morrison government or from Dan Tan, um, and the job losses continue. So uh, that's right. Latrobe has uh, had a vote on whether they would cut wages and um, some of their benefits in order to try and save some of the jobs, but they're still going to lose jobs at Latrobe. Um, last week, we saw some devastating job losses, as you mentioned, at Deakin, more than 420 people being made redundant. Um, really, really, um, you know, distressing scenes there, particularly for, um, you know, highly paid, highly skilled people um, who really should be central to our country's economic recovery. Um, it makes no sense for, for these kind of jobs to be being lost um, in the current downturn, particularly in public education. Um, but again, you know, it's part of the Morrison government's ideological proclivities where that, you know, they're, they're all for propping up certain sectors of the economy, like home renovations and housing construction. Um, but education apparently uh, doesn't deserve public support in the same way. Mm. Well, let's just quickly touch on Home Builder, the scheme that, um, you know, now everything has a special slogan, but um, <laughs> it is a bit 
puzzling for a lot of people who saw the announcement from the Australian government that they will fund grants worth $25,000 for eligible singles and couples planning to build or renovate their home between June and the end of December 2020. Um, And they estimate that the number of people uh, applying for this grant and potentially being approved would go into um, $688 million uh, worth of grants. But I think a lot of people, when they looked at the eligibility criteria, were pretty, pretty um, puzzled as to how many people or any people would actually qualify. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's a, a micro-targeted stimulus scheme. Um, there's a very strange eligibility criteria there. For example, the renovation has got to be more than $150,000, uh, and then you'll get a $25,000 bonus from the government. Um, there's some fairly small, um, you know, the fairly tight kind of eligibility criteria around your income Um it seems to be something that's really more about making an announcement um, mm. rather than actually um, providing stimulus in that sector. And, of course, many people have pointed out that if you really wanted to do something about housing construction, you would look at the areas of greatest need, which would be social and affordable housing, which have shovel-ready projects ready to go, um, but they don't. Again, they don't meet with the Morrison government's ideological approval. Um, so this is very much the kind of Scott Cam kind of uh, backyard blitz kind of style announcement. It's about appealing to Morrison's base amongst um, middle income tradies. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the media splash on it has been, he's done well there. He's got a lot of media coverage about it. So um, once again, Morrison shows that he's a canny political operator. Yeah, and it seems to be one of those projects where they'll say, oh, look, we came in under budget because, you know, only this many people actually used it. Um, We've seen uh, some criticism around uh, the bushfires as well, and obviously it's not just the federal government that um, has a role to play in bushfire recovery efforts. Uh, However, there is a lot of... um, ongoing stories coming out about people still living in garages, in sheds, um, not having their home, um, you know, built, uh, haven't, you know, even started the building process yet because of many issues, obviously, including financial ones, given that um, COVID-19 happened straight after um, the Australian summer bushfire season. Uh, Where are we at in, in terms of that issue? Because this just seems like something that's a bit of a sleeper issue that hasn't had a huge amount of attention and um, has perhaps unintentionally been um, sidelined by coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there'll be ongoing scrutiny of the government's response to the bushfires. There seems to be an inordinate time lag in getting funding to those affected communities. Um, And we've seen actually some government scrutiny of that uh, in um, both the Senate committees and also the bushfire commissions starting up too. So um, I think you're right. It is a sleeper issue. And, of course, we've got the by-election in Eden Monaro coming up. And that will be very interesting to see how the voters of that seat, which was heavily affected by the bushfires, how they judged the government's response. Because uh, at the time, obviously, uh, Morrison's response was uh, very unpopular indeed. But since then, um, you know, things have changed a lot. So um, it's, it's shaping up to be an important by-election, Eden Monaro. Mm, well, let's just quickly talk 
about that one. I know it's um, a very important one and uh, the electorate will go to the polls on the 4th of July. So uh, we're at, where are we now? June the 9th. So we're under a month until that by-election. Um, and we didn't get a chance to say that the uh, sitting member um, has been a really popular one and unfortunately had a number of health issues, Mike Kelly, um, which meant that he had to to step down and that's why we're having this by-election. He was um, widely su- supported and appreciated. Um, but we now have two kind of key candidates um, going for this position, uh, Labor's Christy McBain and the Liberal candidate Fiona Kotvos. And they're saying um, that they're really going to be focusing on the local economy and bushfire recovery. Um, where is Eden Monaro, first of all, for anyone who's not really sure? And um, what kind of position does the, the seat of Eden Monaro have uh, in terms of whether it's been a safe seat or, or a highly contested seat? Uh, Eden Monaro covers a lot of the southeast of New South Wales, completely surrounding the ACT, actually. So it covers the suburbs of Queanbeyan, um, which is sort of the Canberra outer suburbs, but then goes all the way down to the coast. Um, some of those are um, coastal towns like Broombula, Naruma, Bermagui on the New South Wales far south coast. Um, yeah, you're right. The retiring member, Mike Kelly, um, was a very popular local member, um, former ADF colonel, uh, worked in a lot of peacekeeping missions, um, including in Somalia. Um, and then um, he had a pretty pretty good career, actually, as a Labor backbencher and at times on the front bench. Um, he had a strong commitment to um, renewable energy and environmental issues, um, interestingly, um, and clearly a strong popular vote. So Labor will lose his popularity, um, and uh, I think it's a, it's a wide open by election. You know, um, traditionally this is probably national party kind of territory. Um, but, of course, the National Party has, has had its own well-documented issues as well. So um, I think I think it's going to be a very interesting campaign. Um, Ed Monaro is typically seen as the bellwether um, because it's such a diverse seat. Um, it typically swings with the government of the day. So, um, you know, uh, it will be one that um, obviously uh, the government will be keen to pick up and Labor will be desperate to retain. Exactly. Um, ben, there was a little bit of uh, discussion over the weekend from journalists before the Australian Honours list came out. Um, obviously, it was embargoed, so they couldn't say anything to the rest of us, but they were kind of um, concerned about what the public reaction might be to some of these uh, major announcements, particularly the highest honours in the Queen's Birthday Australian Honours. Um, and we then did see exactly why uh, some of these journalists were bemused. Some were um, particularly shocked and surprised. Um, in terms of the, the kind of key or major honours, we did see a huge amount of retired Liberal national politicians receiving, you know, top gongs for mainly things that they did for their paid job as a politician. What are your thoughts on that, including um, the uh, awarding of an AC, which is the highest honour to Tony Abbott? Yes, indeed. Well, that's the one that's got the most uh, publicity and attention, of course. Um, the awarding of that of that AC to Tony Abbott, including including for his uh, services. Excuse me. Hang on. Um, got. A, I've got a little helper here. Uh, yeah, including for his services to Indigenous Affairs. Mm. Uh, 
which so, was and that, specified, of course, wasn't upset it? a lot of people because um, you know many people uh, argue that really his his record on in Indigenous affairs was not great. Um, including massive funding cuts to Indigenous mm. funding when he was Prime Minister. Um, so that's got a lot of attention. But the broader issue here is, you know, the relevance of the honours system and whether they actually, um, you know, what relevance they have in 2020, I think, is an open question. There's always a large number of people who aren't famous and who receive these honours for the work that they do in the community, that they are unsung heroes. Um, and those are the kind of honours that I think most people would support. Mm. You know, for people working away in community services, in childcare, in education, in the arts, um, people like that often for very low pay or community service volunteering. Um, and then you see people like Tony Abbott getting a gong for essentially just being a former prime minister. Um, and some of the sporting gongs are a bit sort of dubious as well, I think. They always seem to give one to the former Australian cricket captain. Whether or not he was that successful, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, and there were some comments about um, former Labor Senator Graham Richardson receiving an honour as well, um, given his chequered career. Um, and uh, there's been just a kind of a huge amount of criticism around um, people like Bronwyn Bishop receiving one. And you do mention there the fact that you know, there are a number of people from the community who are never recognised in a formal way until this point. Um, they're, they're the ones who are usually receiving the OAM or the AM, which are the lower honours. And we often see the kind of rich philanthropists and business people and politicians. Um, and then, of course, some scientists, some uh, academics and others receiving some of the more higher end um, AOAC awards. It does seem that, as you you say the relevance um, may not really be there, and perhaps so. I mean, we've been calling for reform to the honor system for a very long time, um, but it's really becoming more and more contentious. It seems as each honor um, period or or awards are given out, particularly um, given the the previous ones, we saw Bettina Arndt uh, receiving an honor for her services to gender equality. Um, which saw a huge amount of <laughs> criticism and a number of letters being written to the president or the chair of that council. Um, what are your thoughts on those um, that disparity? I think it's a function of the increasing political polarisation of our society. Um, so when some of these honours are nakedly political in their bestowal, you know, people like Bettina Arndt, who was a you know, a self-confessed culture warrior, mm. you know, gender warrior for the, for the, the Disenchanted right. males. Um, absolutely, an, an anti-feminist, in fact, in her own words. Um, you know, these kind of uh, bestowals do tend to um, attract negative political attention from people. Um, and so uh, I think I think it speaks to the polarisation of our society, but it also speaks, I think, to... Um, you know, the anachronism of the honour system in itself. I mean, um, we used to have knighthoods in this country and um, Tony Abbott tried to briefly bring them back was mm. one of the things that torpedoed his prime ministership. Um, but Whitlam brought in the, the Australia Day honours system to try and replace that that kind of anachronistic knighthood kind of um, patronage from the crown idea with a, a civic honour and I think the idea of a civic honour, of honouring people who contribute to our society, is a really good one. Um, but they should be honoured with giving it to people who genuinely have contributed and 
when when you've got these very dubious honours going to former politicians like Bronwyn Bishop, you know, um, who who didn't really do much in her political career except rot the taxpayer for travel entitlements, um, that that contributes to the cynicism of ordinary people, and it actually detracts from the value of these honours themselves. Yeah. Um, just finally, Ben, we are seeing, I guess, a number of inquiries going on, um, which has meant that we've unearthed uh, quite a bit of um, information around what's been happening with the coronavirus response. Um, we are aware that Matthias Cormann is going to get his own grilling over the $60 billion um, <laughs> discrepancy in the JobKeeper uh, projections. And of course, um, that was a major kind of shock to people to think that um, the government had budgeted for $120 billion, um, roughly and that they would have $60 billion spare, quote unquote, to, um, to perhaps provide further stimulus to the economy. It appears that they won't be using that Sixty billion, um, or at least they haven't really announced any any use of that. What are your thoughts on on the fact that the government um, seems to have really stagnated in terms of its response to the economy, and it's kind of as we've already shown in this discussion, really focusing on some very small and piecemeal areas. Yeah, I think it's um, it's coherent with the government's. Um, anti-Keynesian principles, essentially. So um, Morrison and Frydenberg never wanted to do a stimulus. They did it because they got really scared that the economy was imploding. Uh, now that they think that people are coming back to work and the schools are reopening, they believe that the economy is going to snap back, in Morrison's words, and that therefore uh, this a little matter of $60 billion accounting error is actually a thing in the government's favour. They can spend less money, which they consider to be a good thing because they think that government stimulus spending is a bad thing, essentially. Mm. Um, the problem is the economy is still in trouble. Right. And we need more stimulus to get out the back of this. You know, just because the schools are reopening today in Victoria uh, doesn't mean that the economy is going to come back at 100 percent. You know, there's a lot of businesses have closed. A lot of industries are still, um, you know, shut by law, like the arts and entertainment industry. Um, there's a lot of workers out of work. Um, and I think there's going to be some real questions start to be asked about what's our plan to get out of this recession because uh, it's not going away. And the childcare issue is a really good example, actually. What happens in July when that free childcare ends? I think a whole bunch of childcare centres are going to get into financial trouble because a whole bunch of parents aren't going to be afford to send their kids to these centres. Now, what's the government's plan for that? At the moment, they don't really seem to have one. No, they don't. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see given that um, women were already barely making a profit when they did go to work and pay such huge amounts of um, dollars in childcare fees. So uh, if they do have further reduced hours, the trade-off may not be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. There's that problem and there's also the problem of the viability of the childcare centres themselves, mm. right? Um, can they actually stay open if a whole bunch of parents keep their kids at home because they can't afford to send them? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a looming crisis across our education system. It's at the bottom uh, with our youngest uh, early education centres and it's at the top with our universities. So Dan Tien's entire portfolio is on fire basically, um, but Scott Morrison doesn't seem too worried about Nothing that. Nothing to see here. No, indeed. Yeah, well, there is something to see and we will keep an eye on it, won't we, Ben? Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you have a great week.
Thanks, Amy. Always a, pr- a pleasure, mate. Thank you. You too. Thanks. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'm going to be speaking now with historian Liam Byrne, who has written a book called Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party, 1876 to 1921. And we're going to be talking about the early lives of these two men. And uh, I won't really give away much more, but it is important to note that if you if you yourself kind of reflect on these two men, I'm guessing that there might be one that you've heard of more than the other. And that's the case for probably nearly every person in Australia. And it's great to see that Liam has focused his attention on these two figures to give us a realistic and hopefully nuanced, and I'm sure it is nuanced because I read it and I felt that it was, depiction of these two men's early lives uh, before before they became Prime Minister and how um, these kind of early times in their lives shaped them, their political views, and how that stayed the same or changed during their Prime Ministerships. So I welcome Liam Byrne now, who joins me on the phone. Hi there, Liam. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. It's, uh, you know, always nice to be back and moving about the first day after a long weekend. So I may have had one too many coffees this morning, to apologise in advance, but very, very glad to have a chance to talk about Curtin and Scullin. Oh, that's totally fine. I've had about three shots myself, so I'm hopefully I'm awake, but you never know. Um, I'm really pleased that we're going to be talking about these two men who were part of the Labor movement uh, very mm. broadly, and they had a very extensive early life in terms of their political interests and engagement and, um, I guess, participation in some of the major debates within the labour movement in this early 20th century uh, period. First up, I just wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, in our education, um, a number of people may have at some point come across John Curtin, um, but very few people, I would say, haven't have come across James Scullin. And I can say that personally... Um, I, I did, but only because I took uh, higher education subjects in Australian political history. And that was when I did encounter James Scullin and some of the other figures um, like Jack Lang, for example. And so I'm interested how you encountered these two figures and became interested in them in a historical sense. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I suppose going back to my own sort of previous experience, it was very similar. You know, Curtin is somebody who... I just kind of feel it's always been there. Like, he's always been part of the story and the way we tell the story of our country and our, um, our nation. So somebody who's always been there is that kind of emblematic figure, particularly of that um, wartime period when he did uh, lead us in such a significant and such a defining way. But Scullin is somebody who I think maybe perhaps if you read uh, or you take a course on the Great Depression, he may appear. Uh, but apart from that, it's pretty much absent from our history, which I think is um, an immense shame because he's somebody who made such an incredible and such a positive contribution, not just to the Labor movement, but to Australia for um, decade after decade of public service. And he's somebody who really, you know, I've, I've come over the process of writing this biography to admire immensely. I suppose to me, like, what it all came down to is I was, began my sort of research back in the PhD years, a few years ago. And I was really interested in looking at how politics was sort of lived and experienced by so-called ordinary people. So rather than looking just at parliamentarians and just at people at the sort of top end of politics, well, how was politics lived by those who were involved in social movements, the labour movement, for instance, the people who really sort of shaped the politics of the Federation on the ground? 
And the thing that really struck me when I was doing that research was just how often Curtin and Scullin's names appeared. And, of course, I recognised them immediately. I think, oh, it's interesting because these guys are going to go on to become Prime Minister. But the more and more I, I looked and the more and more their names sort of were there, these great moments, early Labor government, the beginning of the First World War, the conscription debates of 1916-17, and so on and so on. I noticed that there was actually something really there. There was a story that hadn't been told before about how they became the figures of influence and of intellect and of, you know, sort of great passion and belief who would then later lead the country. So I suppose it was kind of almost accidental is that I hadn't really realised when I began that research just how significant they were. But over the course of years of reading through, it just became evident that these people shaped our country in significant ways well before the period that we know them best. Yeah, and it is a particularly um, interesting way to, to get into these people by doing a, a biography of, of two individuals. And I know that um, as a historian, you can often feel really attached or start to relate and feel close to the subjects that you're researching, given the really, um, you know, I'm presuming rich primary documents that exist for these Absolutely. two men. Yeah. How did you personally start to relate and understand these men as individuals and individuals that um, were, I guess, very full people. They weren't just politicians. There was a lot more to them than being eventually Prime Minister. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are, is a real variety of the, what's available. So, for instance, with um, Scullin, a lot of his personal records were actually destroyed before he died, um, which is such a shame for a mm. biographer. Um, and you know, not, nothing malicious in that. It was just the, you know, simply the case that he didn't really consider them to be, um, you know, that's a different posterity, I guess. I mean, that's it is not really ascertained why um, he did that, just kind of regular house cleaning. Whereas for Curtin, there's actually a lot more available and some really significant archives and some wonderful historians um, have done great work, David Black in particular, sort of collating some of those materials. And so you can actually, if people are interested in reading some more of his, um, his direct words, you can actually gain a lot of the letters that he wrote uh, when he was a young person, which are really, you know, illustrative. But one of the things that both of them did, um, of course, is that both of them for an extended period of time were newspaper journalists or newspaper editors. And so there's actually a really, really extensive record that hasn't uh, before really gone through in as much detail as like I have gone through in this earlier period, where they talk about, you know, of course, politics, but also so many other different interests. You get a real sense of you know, their love of literature, you know, their love of sport. Um, you know, Curtin, in particular, was a, you know, a very, very avid uh, footballer and cricketer. Perhaps his, uh, his passion for it outstripped his talent for it. But, you know, this is something that was really, really important for him in his life. You know, you can read some of Curtin's early love letters. When you read um, some of the Scullin's initial speeches that he gave at the um, South Street Debating Society in Ballarat, like all, there's all this material which is there to be read and to be found. And when you read it, you get a real sense, as you said um, in, in their question, that these are real human beings. You know, one of the things that really moves me uh, when I read about it is there's this one report of Curtin's first major public speech that he gave um, when he was a member of the Socialist Party. And the person who's writing it, which... It's a little bit cruel in some ways. It begins to talk about how nervous he is and the sort of anxiety that he clearly was expressing on stage. And it's just amazing to think that Curtin, who's widely regarded as one of the great parliamentary orators, at some point was standing before an audience for the first time, giving his first big speech. And just imagine, well, how would you feel as a young person you know, involved in politics who's doing that? And that's what I think is really interesting about this kind of coming-of-age, um, you know, political coming-of-age story, is that you can see all the different ways that they became the figures that we know best rather than sort of reading the story backwards, which I think is something which is quite inspiring and hopeful for people who want to change the world today or people who want to be involved in um, politics and political changes, that these great figures, you know, they started somewhere too. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the early years of the Labor movement and then the Labor Party um, were characterised, as you say, um, by socialist and moderate intellectuals and power breakers power brokers of the Labor movement who all or both sides competed to stamp Labor with their project. And there was this constant contestation of ideas that you come back to and you highlight throughout this book um, between uh, these two sides. And no doubt there was a bit more to it than two sides, but um, it did lead to a number of um, divisions and splits. And uh, as we can tell in in modern day times, um, it's often said that, you know, division is death um, in any party. However, you start to um, demonstrate throughout this book the fact that actually this really great contest of ideas um, and these very strong debates actually uh, pushed Labor forward really far in terms of um, where its policy platforms developed. Could you talk about how um, John Curtin and James Scullin uh, represented some of the debates of the time and where they sat on the spectrum within the Labor movement? Yeah, that's a a really great uh, question. And, of course, I think for a lot of people today it seems quite, you know, uh, counterintuitive to say that political division can actually be positive because the the way political division has been expressed in Australia in recent times has been very, very personalised and very, very bitter. You know, you think about the antagonism between Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull... Uh, to extend that in terms of Scott Morrison and so on, and that's just how it's been. But what we're talking about here is that sort of idea that there are, you know, people who are combined, broadly speaking, around a common political project, which Curtin and Scullin were. They both believed in, you know, uh, the workers' movement and the Labor Party, but having different ideas of you know, the content of that and what that meant. And of course, the ideas changed over time as well. But in this early period, what you're really talking about is that for, you know, for Scullin in particular, he was somebody who very much expressed the tradition. Uh, of the Labor Party being for absolutely for transformative democratic reform, but who believed that any idea of socialist transformation, while being appealing to him in some way, uh, was for very, very, very far down the future track, something to worry about in many, many years' time uh, after he, he, he said workers have been educated to that project and what it meant. And so he was really focused on, yes, socialism is a great goal for the future, but what he wanted to deal with was the immediate need for social change in Australia, considering the sort of conditions as they existed. And so that led to him to you know, advocate a number of major transformations. And that's the thing is I don't want the term moderate uh, to sort of explain in the book. There's moderate in that sort of context, but moderate doesn't mean he was against reform or he was against change. He very much wanted substantial change to make Australia a more decent and equal place. Whereas for Curtin, there was a different sort of imperative where he believed that socialism was not something that you know, needed to be delayed to the far-flung future, but actually was something that was realisable and achievable in the, um, in the immediate term. He fought Australia at various points, particularly after the Second World War, uh, uh, sorry, after the First World War, I should say. Uh, he believed that it was something that was, could potentially be on the cards in the immediacy. And his plan was to work not to, for socialism as a distant future, but as an immediate prospect. And you sort of see that in everything that he does, one of the big ones being pushing the program for the Labor Party itself to adopt a socialist um, objective and to declare itself an out-and-out socialist party, which is something that Curtin in this stage very adamantly believes in. And those different tensions about, you know, what, what, you know, firstly, what does socialism mean? Because, of course, we today consider socialism in a very different way um, than they did in the early part of the 20th century with different associations with it and so on. But are debating, you know, what does socialism mean? How do you get there? Like, how extensive a change are you actually going to require? And what does that mean for the shape of Australia as it currently exists for them and the political projects of trying to change that? So is, um, you know, all the, the sort of big principle debates immediately go into sort of strategic debates and tactical debates and so on. So it's really, you know, not just how do you think 
Australia should be at some point far down the future. But you know, how is your political practice now attempt to achieve that tomorrow and what we could become as a country? So it's really, really, you know, um, rich. It's really, really fulfilling sort of traditions of debate. And particularly for Curtin and Scullin, they did have different sort of perspectives, but they didn't clash on that personal level. Like they weren't going out there sort of trying to cut people down um, in this sort of like insulting, mean way in public debates. It was about those principles, about that project, and about politics as being a higher calling and a higher cause. Yes, it does seem quite remo- removed from our current uh, situation. <laughs> <It's your day. laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of the socialist objective, I mean, some people may not quite understand its significance uh, to the Labor Party and also to its constitution, but it has been kind of written in to the constitution for a long time and it also has been a point of division or um, tension in, within the Labor Party, even up until now, talking about just how immediate or urgent or um, important this socialist objective is to Australia, to Labor's platform and to its policy choices and developments. Um, so in terms of that uh, objective specifically and its place within the Labor constitution, um, where did that come from in relation to these two men? Like, when did it start to appear and become debated? And has that debate changed uh, in terms of where we are now? Yeah, great question. So the debate over the socialisation objective um, is something that's really been around since the, the Labor Party was formed. So when the, the Labor Party was first formed, uh, it was actually formed before the Australian Federation. So what you're really talking about in uh, actual terms is Labor Party. There was a number of distinct colonial Labor Parties rather than a single organisation. That kind of developed over a period of time. So you have one in 1891 being set up in New South Wales and one being set up in Queensland. And, of course, with everything to do with Australian state, a lot of debate about which one was first, and which one, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. But... Really what you have from the the get-go is a series of people from different parts and traditions of the Labor movement coming together to form this political organisation to be the political expression of the Labor movement in the parliamentary realm and also more broadly in politics. And so that meant that it was very much a kind of coalition-based party. You have different sort of um, political ideas and temperaments and people coming together underneath that basic objective. So from the 1890s in New South Wales, for instance, there were major debates that took place between socialists and sort of more moderate-minded Labor members about what the future of the party was going to be. Now, the socialists at that time decided that the best thing to do was to leave the Labor Party in New South Wales and to try and set up their own organisations, something that was spectacularly unsuccessful. Well, in Victoria, where Curtin was, there was a different sort of idea, which was for socialists like Curtin, what they did was that they remained in the Labor Party and they tried to organise uh, within it and organise their own groups. And Curtin was very, very strongly influenced by somebody called Tom Mann, who was a, a famous British radical who came over to Australia for a number of years and who helped to create this sort of pro- this political project of trying to change Labor to a socialist party from within. And so what you have is basically from 1905, up until 1921, when the Labor Party formally adopts this objective, is this debate that's constantly going on in the background between people like Curtin, who want to see the Labor Party be transformed into a socialist organisation and to be explicitly so, and those um, who oppose that sort of objective and think that Labor, you know, that's too radical, it goes too far, um, and that that will sort of miseducate people on what the party is all about. And Scullin's position on that is quite interesting and sort of changes over time and becomes quite strategic. But that's the sort of origins about, well, what is the Labor Party going to be? Are, is the party going to be a, a, you know, a organisation that flat out declares itself for total socialist transformation? Or is it one that's more likely to say that it's, yeah, inspired by socialism, but it's, you know, it's actually pursuing a reform-based project for the immediacy? 
And so that's been kind of the debate over a long period of time in the ALP. I think now they have to say that there is a different debate that's going on around um, the objective, insofar as there is one. You know, I, I don't think you know, most people who are in the uh, Labor Party are going, uh, you know, waking up in the morning obsessing about the status of the socialist objective. But there is definitely a feeling from some people that it's um, within the organisation, we've seen them in, you know, declared numerously in previous years, that it doesn't really represent the sort of the modern vision of the party in the 21st century and what it's seeking to aim and to pursue, uh, and others who see it uh, as remaining a sort of a lodestar, like a significant um, connection to the past and tradition of struggle that's existed before. And I think that, of course, you know, the way history sort of moves on is that people tend to uh, look back on their previous debates and sort of only see the discussions that are useful for their arguments today, whereas what I try and do is go back and put them back in the context of time to understand the meaning and significance of, you know, what the socialist objective was in 1921 rather than necessarily what it is for people in 2020 looking back on 1921. Like, I'm trying to recast for Curran and Scullin, like, what were they talking about? What was the meaning for them? Why was this such a substantial debate? And why was it one that then sort of led to such emotional attachment to this objective, which even is, you know, amongst some sections of the Labor Party today? Yes, yes, there certainly is. Um, and it can be uh, pretty heated at times because, um, as you know, the social democratic aims of the Labor Party have been um, wavering at times and some people still want to go back to that. So um, it'll be interesting to see how things do arise. I know that every conference there is kind of a debate as to whether the socialist objective should be kept in there. Um, but yeah, it is, it's an interesting debate to look at. I'm glad that you say that as a historian, um, that's what your, your aim is, is to look at how these things were for the time. And I think that's something that um, for the layperson who's not a historian, um, it's important to keep in mind is that we're, look, we're thinking and looking at a context that is ex- very, very different to the one we're in right now. And sometimes it's tempting to look back uh, with a judgment or a lens that is from now, instead of trying to understand the past context that these comments and policies are coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a real challenge as well, because, you know, mm. we, we know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, one of the great privileges, one of the great sort of benefits that we have looking back uh, in time. But the, the reality is that people are acting with no real sense of, you know, what's going to happen. They, mm. they don't know. I mean, there's extraordinary potential changes. So the things that we look back, for instance, with the, um, you know, the outbreak of the First World War, for instance, like we know that that's coming in 1914. Like we know looking back that there's going to be, you know, the people who are thinking one thing is going to uh, be the most important sort of project over the next few years are about to confront something radically different and they've got no idea it's coming. Um, You know, we have the ability to look back and sort of see that, but people at the time were acting, you know, based on the conditions and the realities around them, that they were trying to shape and change but weren't always to their control. And you think about things, for instance, for, you know, James Scullin, I think that's one of the, you know, the immense tragedies of his career was that he was somebody who, you know, we know looking back about the Great Depression now and so on, and we know what that meant and the effect in his role in it. Well, he was somebody who didn't know that when he was working towards it. And, you know, you think this is a guy who reaches the pinnacle of his um, career just weeks before the, by becoming Prime Minister, I should say, just weeks before the Great Depression breaks out and fundamentally transforms everything that he's, you know, attempting to do. Like, it's, uh, you know, we have benefits that they don't have at that sort of time and I agree with you I think that you know making sure that we keep in mind what they were thinking the way they were interpreting the world is very very important to understand who they actually were because you know we we just plain know things that they don't yeah yeah and um and our values have since shifted uh as well so that's another major area of difference um 
in terms Absolutely, of... and that's one of the things that I talk about the book is, you yeah. know, the same world is drastically different from ours. And I think that it's really important and really significant that while looking back, and I think it's overwhelming when you say that there are a lot of positives to take from their worldviews and their understandings of the world, but there are also things that thankfully are completely different now that we have moved on, but we absolutely don't want to excuse or justify their positions on. And, you know, that's, again, looking at any of the figures from that early period of the Federation, you have to confront those sort of things. I mean, for instance, one of the things you have to confront is that there was a wide-held belief in that time in the policies of racial exclusion, the racist policies that underpinned the white Australia policy. And, you know, it's the sort of thing is by no means do I attempt to uh, excuse or justify the fact that both of these men in different ways and for different reasons ultimately supported that policy, which is something that I think we have to be honest about. And we have to say there is no... You know, no excuse or justification for that part of their worldviews. And that's, you know, something any of these figures, if we're going to, as a country, be, you know, confident about ourselves and moving ahead uh, and be a future-oriented sort of uh, citizenry, as we should be, we need to look back on these historical figures and have a real open accounting of that part of their sort of uh, politics at this time. Mm, exactly. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about them. It means that we need to talk about them with our eyes wide open and the full facts in front of us, which is what this book mm. does. Um, and one of the chapters covers a really tumultuous time in Australian history that I I really am not sure that people quite realise just how um, significant and divisive and you know, just how much of an upheaval um, this time was, but it was the conscription debates and referendums which happened in 1916 or started in 1916. There were two of them um, and that were being pushed by the Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, and these were really, really... um, there was a lot of civil unrest. There was a lot of, there was even violence and there was a, a huge number of issues that came up within the Labor Party that were tied to conscription. And you highlight some of these issues, including um, the race issue and white Australia and immigration, as well as class issues um, and, an, and a number of others. And I wonder whether you could talk about uh, John Curtin and James Scullin and how they were involved in the conscription debates and what significance they had had in those times. Yeah, and it was extraordinary times. Uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that really, there should be a Netflix series about the conscription uh, debates, I think, because yeah. they're so uh, rich and so impassioned and so formative to Australia and, and what our country is and became. So the, the real origins for the conscription debate itself uh, was for a number of years before then that there'd been um, sort of a policy that had existed amongst a number of parties, including the ALP, to support compulsory military training for young men the home defence. So in other words, the idea that you need to train people to, uh, particularly young men, to be able to defend Australia. And so that was something that uh, Scullin supported, but Curtin adamantly opposed. And so 1916, of course, this is two years into the, uh, the First World War. It's a period of time when you're seeing a transition to the, uh, particularly on the Western Front, to a new type of um, fighting, extremely brutal, uh, heavy casualties and so on, you know, industrialised war, really. And it's a time when there was a sort of demand that was coming uh, for more and more troops to be, uh, to be mobilised and to be sent. And so Billy Hughes, who was the, he was actually a Labor Party Prime Minister, but he went to Britain uh, for a tour and then came back and declared that this was you know, uh, the way that we were going to proceed, was that he wanted to have a, a conscription uh, policy passed that would then mean that Australian uh, men, as, uh, as, as it was a gender sort of uh, proposal, were going to be mobilised to be sent to fight in Europe. So what happened was that the, while that was officially the Parliamentary Labor Party sort of... Um, their position um, for the majority of the party. But for people who are in the union movement in particular and outside of uh, Parliament, that they opposed this proposal overwhelmingly. And Curtin and Scullin became really, really significant figures in this. 
Curtin was completely opposed to conscripting people to fight at all at this point, whereas Scullin was completely opposed to the idea of compelling people to fight in Europe if they didn't want to. So he still believed that you could conscript people to defend Australia, but he didn't believe that you could conscript them to send them over to a different continent to fight a war there. So if Australia wasn't directly under threat. And so together they, they um, were part of a, this massive movement um, that was organised and predominantly run by the union movement at the time, uh, which is about mobilising people to vote in a... Um, a well, there's a debate over whether or not it was a plebiscite or a referendum, which has kind of been confused in recent times by that, but it, it didn't affect the constitution, but it was a mass public vote. Uh, and it, what, the reason why there was a mass public vote was because uh, Billy Hughes, he wanted to basically kind of get public authority and public support for this proposal because he was quite worried that a number of the senators in the Labor Party who were backed by the union movement wouldn't vote to enforce conscription. So he wanted to get this kind of like public vote to show support um, and very, very much expected that the public would come out and support uh, the proposal for military conscription. Now, there's a number of factors that made this more complicated uh, for Hughes. I mean, for instance, there was a, uh, the 1916 Easter uprising and the very, very brutal repression of that in Ireland um, by the British colonial occupying forces there meant that a lot of the uh, Australian Irish population became quite antagonistic to this idea of uh, you know, serving the uh, British imperial uh, forces in Europe. Um, but by and large, the main reason why the conscription um, movement began and was so uh, fueled in the way it was, was because the, the unions at the time decided that this was the sort of issue that they needed to sort of make clear that they did not support people being conscripted against their will to fight on a different continent. And they were also very concerned by what had happened um, in Europe, where conscription had also been a means to enforce what was known as industrial conscription. So basically where military methods were used in industry to strip away any last vestiges of rights that workers had in the war economies of Europe. So they were very, very concerned about what this meant for liberty and freedom and democracy in Australia. And so they mobilised a massive campaign. Curtin was actually the secretary of that campaign. So he was basically um, you know, the person who ran uh, the, you know, from the grassroots level up the entire sort of uh, anti-conscription movement as his first position of national prominence. And Scullin became a very, very famous uh, sort of, uh, well, propagandist would be the term, but sort of commentator and somebody who writes frequently in his policy editor of a newspaper called The Evening Echo, which is based in Ballarat. And so this is a time of censorship. This is a time where there was, you know, active sort of uh, opposition by the uh, government itself to people who were trying to uh, uh, campaign for the anti-conscription side. So you have sort of these amazing sort of stories of the Ballarat Evening Echo, which Scullin was... Uh, was editing, being printed in the tens of thousands for the duration of this campaign and being smuggled from Ballarat into Melbourne by train drivers and sort of, uh, you know, underneath their seats and all sort of stuff. And they've been <laughs> pulling out these giant stacks of newspapers to distribute around uh, Melbourne, you know, sometimes with uh, the eyes of censors upon them. And this is a very serious sort of time. Like, newspapers were being censored. They were being shut down. There were military raids on um, editorial offices and so on. Trade hall in Melbourne was raided. Uh, at one point by military police. So it was a very, very severe sort of issue. But through this campaign, because they were aimed at mobilising popular sentiment and sort of making the call that this was about defending democracy, actually, in the end, the uh, campaign against conscription was successful in 1916, which nobody was really expecting. Like, people kind of mm. fought with the government, most of the press, most of the churches, uh, even, you know, all supporting conscription. People really, really generally thought that they were going to, um, the pro-conscription side was going to win. And so it was just a shock. It was absolute sort of thunderbolt through uh, Australia to have this happen. And both Curtin and Scullin, because of this campaign and their role in it, this is the moment where they go from being sort of kind of well-known locally, well-regarded locally, to figures of real national prominence and significance. And sort of the postscript to that story is that at the end of 1916, uh, Billy Hughes was actually expelled formally from the Australian Labor Party. 
it was James Scullin who moved the motion to expel him, uh, which is quite an extraordinary thing when you think it Beginning of 1916, James Scullin was the editor of a, a yeah, relatively small union-backed newspaper in Ballarat. By December 1916, he was somebody who was making national headlines as expelling the Prime Minister from his own party. Yeah, it's a massive time. Um, and certainly that 1916 split had huge repercussions. And um, certainly Billy Hughes, I know a lot of people, given his like loyalty to Britain and his continual pushing of conscription... I mean, a lot of people kind of thought he didn't quite belong there anymore, um, given his views and the fact that he didn't accept that first plebiscite result as the ultimate answer. He kept pushing and pushing and then we had another vote again. Um, in terms of that split, where did uh, John Curtin stand on things? So John Curtin, as I mentioned, so he was the he was called the Secretary of the National um, Executive of the Anti-Conscription Campaign. So he was somebody who was very, very much sort of engineering the union uh, campaign and mobilisation against conscription. So he was very, very strongly for um, the union side to defeat conscription and uh, when it came to it, to getting Billy Hughes out. So he was immediately after the conscription uh, campaign had been successful in 1916, he was saying, this guy is not going to stop. And he was actually warning that they're actually, he may just try and introduce it through Parliament. He may find other ways and this guy's going to try and do it. And it's because, you know, some would suggest the, the strong mobilisation. In fact, there was this kind of campaign machinery in place that sort of made that not an appealing idea for Billy Hughes. He at least waited a year before he tried to do it again and through mm. another campaign. Um, but, you know, he was very, very serious about the proposal, quite clearly. And one of the things that may be interesting for people to know is that um, there was actually a call-out uh, that was delivered during the 1916 campaign for uh, men of military age to come, to be basically go into uh, camps to be prepared to, for military training. Uh, and this was something that obviously the people who opposed conscription seized upon and sort of said, well, look, this shows that they're, um, you know, even though the vote hasn't happened yet, they're still making these moves to try and threaten us uh, and to push us towards conscription. And so it's something that some have suggested really, really damaged Hughes' cause. But it's also a time when Ferdin refused to go. You know, he was leading the anti-conscription campaign. He was literally the head uh, of this campaign. And so he refused to go to his military call-up when Hughes did it before the conscription vote in 1916. And because of that, after the uh, vote had taken place, he was actually arrested and he was uh, taken to trial. Uh, he was defended by a famous Labor lawyer at the time, Morris Blackburn, but he ended up spending a period of time in prison, three days, uh, in Pentridge. So if anybody uh, is you know, around that complex these days, uh, maybe where a lot of residential uh, sort of parts of that complex, that that was actually somewhere that Curtin uh, went. And he went there because he opposed this call-up of people during the anti-conscription campaign, and that makes him the only Australian Prime Minister to have served time in prison. Yeah, that was actually one of the most fascinating anecdotes for me because um, I had not encountered that and it's um, shocking to think and it seems like, as you wrote, uh, Curtin wasn't really uh, made out for jail life and I know that Pentridge Prison certainly wasn't a walk in the park um, at that time no, and no. <laughs> nowhere near our jail systems now. Um, but he, he did say something and you quote him as saying, um, that beastly old jail put its brand on me. I haven't the temperament not to still feel the narrowness of the cell and the damnation of its equipment. Yeah, which is it's quite striking. It's also um, probably the other part of the story I should have mentioned, which is with that, is that in 1916, you know, this is a period of time where uh, Curtin, as people will be aware, had, uh, particularly as a young man, a number of difficulties with alcohol. Yes. Uh, and it was uh, something that, you know, he, on a number of occasions, had like really, real serious difficulty in terms of his, um, you know, basically falling into, you know, I, I hate to use the term, uh, again, casting back, because 
I mean, that could be a bit problematic, but, you know, kind of depressed states uh, where he relied on alcohol quite heavily. And he had a major, major episode of this nature early in 1916, um, and it was something that he then had to go to, um, basically to go to a recovery uh, sort of hotel, sort of work through the process of trying to, you know, to dry himself out, I guess would be the term. And so this happened, you know, a, a very, very severe sort of emotional experience. And then immediately after that, he was leading the national campaign against conscription. And then immediately after that, he was in prison. You know, it's a, it's quite an extraordinary year and series of events for him. And not too long after that, he actually left Victoria to uh, move to Western Australia, which, of course, is the next big part of his story and his sort of step towards the prime ministership. But it was, you know, as I say in the book, I don't think there is a more significant year in their, their political lives before they become prime ministers, then 1916. For both of them, that was the turning point. That was, uh, sort of led them from being well-regarded local figures to becoming figures of national prominence. And, you know, going to prison was obviously a horrendous experience for Curtin, but it was something that did, uh, you know, aid his career. Um, obviously, it wasn't a purposeful thing, but there was a lot of... He became a martyr of the movement in many ways. The guy led the national campaign, then he was thrown in prison for it. So something, you know, that gets noticed and, you know, people held him in a lot of very, very high regard for the fact that he held that principal position. And it was one thing that, you know, about Curtin consistently throughout his life was that when circumstances demanded it, no matter how tough it was, he held his principal position. Mm. Yes, and that is, as we know, something particularly rare in politics, but uh, probably more rare now. Now, <laughs> I do want to talk about um, the immediate aftermath of that first campaign uh, because you do note that there was a 1917 federal election um, with obviously a, quote, newly purified ALP, thinking that mm. they would um, you know, potentially be victorious in this election, coming up against uh, Billy Hughes, who was now leading a nationalist party. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't go Labor's way. And uh, but I was interested that you noted the reason why uh, Scullin in particular was okay or not okay with it, but perhaps um, satisfied with that result was because Hughes had only been elected or won by promising not to impose conscription. Yeah, that's right. Which is that uh, you know, uh, <laughs> over time people began less and less to believe Billy Hughes' promises <laughs> for a reason, and. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, scepticism. And uh, one other thing to say about, you know, Scullin as well was that he had served in Parliament with Hughes. Um, Scullin was a member of Parliament from 1910 to 1913 uh, in Karangamai. So he actually knew him quite closely um, in that period. Well, you know, don't want to overstand it. wasn't like their best friends or anything. But, you mm. know, he, he worked with him. He knew him. And like many people in the Labor movement, he built up great admiration for Billy Hughes. Like, Billy Hughes was well-known and well-respected before he became Prime Minister. So there was reasons why kind of uh, so Scullin would have a certain emotional attachment to him, which Curtin never really had, uh, which is interesting, of course, because Hughes would remain in Parliament up until, you know, Curtin was Prime Minister in the Second World War and um, yeah. you know, played quite a prominent role in some debates. So he's, he's definitely a stayer, uh, but not exactly known as being somebody uh, of the highest principle, uh, which is probably one of the great distinguishing features between he and uh, Curtin and Scullin. But I suppose that's one of the things you say about that period is that what Scullin was drawing solace from, which Curtin didn't in 1917, was that Hughes said that he wanted to impose conscription, but he also began to uh, basically propose a series of Labor's policies and claimed them as his own and said, this is what we're going to do, things which were about, you know, not ma making working people pay for the cost of the war. And then pretty much immediately after he was uh, in power, all those promises were dropped. And that, again, is a, a theme in uh, with some parts of our political system, I'm afraid. So. Yeah. Well, I know that Billy Hughes had a very strong personality and that was both attractive and repulsive in e equal measure, potentially, with depending on what side of the 
the spectrum you fell in. Um, but it, yeah, yeah, it is interesting to see other politicians and parliamentarians comment upon the character of, of these politicians um, when they become prime minister a bit later on. Um, I do also want to touch on um, these two men in a couple of other ways. Um, I do want to ask about John Scullin and, sorry, James Scullin in particular, given that we're not as familiar with him um, broadly and kind of understand uh, how he came to power. I know this is probably, you know, a lot more um, into the future, but I wonder how, um, he, what his significance is today in terms of his prime ministership and, um, and how his early years influenced the way that he behaved and, um, and conducted himself during his prime ministership, which, of course, as you said, was uh, during the Great Depression and was certainly no easy feat to, to manage the country during a time like that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like his story is just, it, it's just fascinating. Um, and he's somebody who I said before is, you know, his contribution to Australia as well as the Labor movement is much under-recognised and under-appreciated because of that period of government, uh, which is just sort of focused on. But, you know, somebody over many, many decades thought seriously about our country, where it was heading and where it needed to be. Uh, and it's an extraordinary contribution. So he was born uh, in 1876, so, which means that his early life was actually shaped by the Great Depression of the 1890s. Mm. So we talk about Great Depression. It always sound, you know, people think about 1930s, but actually there were many Great Depressions, unfortunately, that sort of shaped people's political ideas and consciousness. And Scullin was somebody who his life opportunities were fundamentally transformed by that Great Depression, and it was something which he always warned against, the idea of returning to it. And throughout his entire political life, he sort of said back in that period, it was working people who bore the cost of that depression, and he was looking for ways to make sure that that wouldn't happen again. And this is probably one of the, great, the greatest tragedies of Scullin's life, really, was that from his early career, from 1906, when I sort of begin telling his story in earnest, as a you know, political activist, all the way up to when he was Prime Minister, he was warning against the factors that would lead to the Great Depression, effectively. And you know, in, he was in Parliament briefly from 1910 to 1913. Um, after he was, uh, he, he was unable to win an election in a rural city in 1913, he became a very, very well-known newspaper editor, which is backed by uh, one of the major unions at the time, and was you know, really influential in the public debates, which led to him becoming a uh, member for the seat of Yarra in 1922, and increasingly through the 1920s, becoming a prominent Labor sort of figure, warning about the, uh, basically the, the fact that the Conservative government at the time, originally by, led by Billy Hughes and then by Stanley Bruce, was pursuing fiscal policies that were not preparing us for any crash that may come and any sort of problem that may arise. And so the, the tragedy is that he spends the entire 20s warning against this, and then three weeks before the Great Depression breaks out, he's elected. Uh, as Prime Minister. So he's had none of the opportunity to implement the plans to actually prepare or to you know, drive us in a different economic direction, and yet has to deal immediately with the consequences of somebody else's mistakes. And that's one of the things which is really tragic about Scullin, was that immediately after he becomes Prime Minister, he begins to propose a whole series of measures of what he thinks the response should be, uh, which are based far more on, um, you know, not, not to the extent that it would later develop and you'd really say was probably necessary, but more on government intervention and stimulus, and um, which is the term we've used today, not necessarily then. And he was opposed in everything by a conservative-dominated Senate, by uh, the bank uh, banking institutions, which did not hold the same sort of approaches as he had. They had totally different orthodoxies by a, you know, quite a hostile sort of uh, banking sector from Britain, which, you know, where a number of Australian loans were held and so on. So as, as soon as he came to power, he just faced 
this absolute stumbling blocks everywhere he looked were people who just were completely dedicated by principle and ideology to opposing his ideas of how you could actually try and deal with that crisis. And he was somebody who, as a result, I think he made a number of you know, wrong decisions during the Great Depression, but more than that, was ensnared by this sort of situation that he hadn't created and in many ways was out of his, outside of his control. And unfortunately, the way these things tend to work is because, because he was the Prime Minister, he carries the responsibility and he's remembered in it uh, history for the, all the mistakes that were made and uh, they all get laid on him including the ones that his opponents and other people were making at the time. So it is quite a sad story uh, in that regard. I think that, you know, the the way that the orthodoxy of the time was sort of emphasised, you must cut uh, deficits, you must cut budgets, you must make sure that loans are repaid as the primary uh, sort of emphasis at this time, that it's, you know, investing in the government, borrowing, that this, these are all bad things, even though they may stimulate consumption, because really the main problem is that, I mean, you're not drawing a massive bow between then and now to think about some of the ways that the current some economic crisis is being discussed in places around the world to say that the debates around the Great Depression are specific to that time, but actually have a real resonance today. And I think that, you know, like a lot of people look at sort of see some of the things that are happening around the world today and are worried that some of the lessons of that period of time and how that crisis was mismanaged and not being learned. Mm, mm, exactly. I'm speaking with Liam Byrne, who is a historian, and we're talking about his new book. Uh, it's called Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party. Now, um, I should cover off on John Curtin, who we've also been discussing throughout this interview. And um, as we've already prefaced, he is a far more well-known and recognised and in some ways deeply loved figure um, in terms of people of the party who know of him and and how he was as a person. Um, It's interesting when you talk about his kind of character and the way he came across to people, um, even in his early years, as being quite aloof and not really getting, you know, being part of those blokey bloke mm. conversations, which are very much something that dominates uh, politics even now. And I was interested in that fact that, you know, he still, um, even because he didn't, even when he didn't conform to these kind of behavioural norms and social ways of being in politics, he was still very much well-loved, deeply admired, and not just... Um, by his own party, but particularly by those uh, across the aisle who have written extensively about how deeply they felt for and um, loved this man. And, you know, even in my own research looking into Enid Lyons, who was the first female um, representative in the House of Representatives, she even writes in her memoirs about just how much she um, admired him deeply, as did Joe Lyons, her husband. And, uh, And I wondered why this was the case why someone like John Curtin, through your research, could be so uh, widely admired, because that is quite a rare thing in politics. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and probably at that time, to be honest, that there was a bit more space for people to admire those on the opposite side. I mean, some of mm. the partisanship that we've come to understand today still existed, of course, and there were deep personal antagonisms that existed, but there, were also, there was also a greater capacity to admire those who you didn't agree with, but who you know, pursued genuinely public service, where politics these days, because there's been such a, you know, people no longer are pursuing the big picture vision, yet they still maintain the antagonism and the hostility towards each other. You know, it's that kind of strange sort of development. Whereas back then, you could at least respect that people were pursuing, you know, a vision of Australia that you didn't agree with it, but you, you understood that it was a genuinely held sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's, 
that's a, totally, a bit of a different thing uh, in terms of the way politics is done. But I think for Curtin, you know, at a certain point, character just wins out, right? Like, he was mm. this guy, he was a West Australian worker as a newspaper, and you get these amazing sort of accounts of his staff members where he would basically just walk through the halls kind of like a bit vacant-eyed talking to himself because he was reading out the, what is going to become the next editorial that he's going to write. And it could quite often seem rude and abrupt. Like, he was often known for just walking out of conversations because an idea had come to him about the article and he'd go and sit down and write it. And so, like, you could see, like, oh, what a strange, rude man, you potentially. But what then would happen was that he would stop the people and ask them about a sickness in the family. There's something that he was the editor, he was the, he was the boss, but he would ask people who worked for him, you know, he would remember about their family, he'd remember about the people around them. Like, he cared, and he showed that he cared in those little moments, which perhaps are not as sort of attention-grabbing, but they're the ones that are more meaningful for that, the everyday sort of care and concern, and he showed that deeply for the people around him. But also I think is that you could not meet Curtin, you could not talk to Curtin, you could not experience him. This is something that people talk about without just getting that passion and conviction of what he stood for and what he believed in. You know, he was somebody who came across as genuine in the advances that he wanted for Australia. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of his opponents and so on, when he was, uh, you know, pursuing it relentlessly, perhaps found that quite frustrating and um, annoying because he was quite good at it and they didn't really want that to happen. But it's hard not to admire somebody who believes so passionately, you know, in, in what Australia can be and what it could be if things were a little different and is willing to put his, you know, entire political life behind trying to make that happen. You know, it's quite an admirable uh, sort of trait, and it's something which I think is you see in this book is that it's something that didn't just he didn't be, uh, you know get appointed prime minister and then all of a sudden have ideas about what he wanted Australia to be. He literally spent decades of his life working towards this, and I think the reason why he's so well known and loved is of course because he was our leader in that great moment of of crisis during the Second World War. But he's also the leader at the time when we began to put in place not just what the war was going to be like, but what the peace was going to be like. When you look at things after the Second World War, such as full employment, the rise of uh, entirely new pension systems and welfare systems, expansion of education, all this sort of stuff, these things have origins incurred as actions in government. And that, you know, the, the contribution he made to Australia is the reason why he became so well-loved. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really quite tragic that he did die um, just six weeks before the Japanese surrendered um, at the lodge. And I know that it was um, something that really was a national grief um, that a number of people uh, just felt. And no doubt it was a very tumultuous time and already an emotional time, given that so many people, Australians in particular, um, died overseas, away from their families uh, during World War II. So uh, that no doubt does add another kind of level of mythology in a way to him and, and not actually being able to see the end of World War II. Yeah, absolutely, and think that, you know, throughout his entire life, he campaigned against militarism. Mm. You know, somebody who, who wanted to oppose war. Like, in, you know, when it came to the Second World War and the process building up to it, Curtin, he very much wanted actions to be taken that would prevent war from happening, but when it became inevitable, of course, he, he took the leadership and he, he took the positions that he felt were necessary to defend Australia. Like, yeah. you know, he, he, he was reluctant insofar as he didn't want war, but he wanted to defend Australia. That's what it was all about for him. And so, you know, the, the great you know, sort of tragedy and irony is after decades of campaigning for a more peaceable region, a more peaceable world, is that he did not serve a single day as Prime Minister in a time of peace. Uh, from 1941 till his death in July 1945, every single day was one of war. And, you know, it's a, one of those sort of things is that he's, for him, um, you know, this, the, the tragedy of that and the, the difficulties of being a leader in that sort of time, obviously compounded by his other health issues and so on, leading to that um, in passing away and very much being seen at the time. You can see in the reportage, people considered him to be a casualty of the war. Mm. Um, 
but, you know, again, I think the thing with Curtin is that the tragedy that you can experience from that, while it's very, very deeply um, sad and sort of something that you can look back on and regret, is to never forget that the inheritance of Curtin's leadership was, was peace. And it was the period that we had after war when Australia was playing a really, really positive role internationally in pursuing programs of how do we actually make sure that our societies are not the type that are creating those wars again, that they are more equal, that they are more decent, that people do get, you know, who can work and who want to work, get jobs which are actually going to be fulfilling to them um, and that prevent the sort of conditions of the, the Great Depression coming back and so on. Lessons, unfortunately, that have in many part been forgotten or, um, in recent sort of decades. But, you know, that peace, that experience of prosperity, that experience of, you know, of social equality to an extent that we hadn't had it before definitely wasn't complete, and I don't want to overemphasize that, and definitely wasn't shared by everybody. But that the belief that Australia could be a more decent and equal place, that is Curtin's true inheritance, not the tragedy that he had of never being able to experience that time of peace personally. Mm, exactly. And um, I should note, and we've already kind of mentioned this and, and covered it in a way, is that obviously uh, throughout um, Australia since Federation, the White Australia policy has been existent right up until um, Whitlam uh, implemented amendments in the immigration law in 1973 to end that policy formally. So um, during this period, there is a kind of accepted um, racism just built within and into Australia's political system, even into its legislation, um, as well as its actions as a state. And that's something which um, had become and was unfortunately uh, accepted among so many of um, Australians. And it was, as we as we now know today, part of the majority um, view and, and beliefs. So that's one other kind of lens and element that that runs throughout this story that you do raise in the various um, major moments in political history and you do, um, I guess, encounter them and, and deal with them. In terms of how we do reconcile um, race and and this kind of striving for social equality or at least um, a, a higher level of egalitarianism, how do you as a historian um, kind of deal with those uh, those tensions and things that are really front of mind at the moment? Yeah, well, I think openly and honestly is the way you do it. Is uh, the only way that you can do it is mm. by pointing out exactly what it was that they stood for, putting it in the context of the time. As I said before, not excusing or justifying it. Um, you know, this this was their worldview. This was what they said, and uh, concluded in the book. Like the um, Australia that we have today is different to the Australia that they lived in. And one of the you know benefits is that uh, positive story to say is that that sort of policy of racial exclusion was torn down um, eventually and it's important to remember that it existed and it's important to remember that this was something that was widely supported across across the political spectrum because we have to work as a society never to return to that sort of attitude and never return to those sort of policies and so we have to be open we have to be honest about it and we have to confront the realities that this existed as you say all throughout the um, political system and the economic system and we're talking about this time as well it's also important to recognize that it wasn't just the uh, policies of racial exclusion that prevented people from coming to Australia. It was also the continuing policies of racism that existed within Australia at that time, both towards migrant communities, but also towards indigenous population uh, of Australia as well. But there were discriminatory mm. policies that were based around preventing indigenous people from gaining equality and perpetuating the ongoing dispossession uh, that they experienced at that time and, of course, continuing today. So, you know, these, these are things which are embedded within the Australian political system, the Australian economic system, Australian society and culture. Uh, we gain nothing from pretending that that is not the case and we uh, need to be open we need to confront it directly um, because that's the only way that we're ever going to become truly able to deal with that 
reality in a way that makes sure that our future does not represent, it does not simply reflect those aspects of our past because, you know, our future cannot be built, uh, you know, in misrecognition of what's actually happened in this country and the appalling sort of aspects of uh, sort of racialized inequality that have existed. Yes, absolutely. And continue to exist. Yeah. And continue to exist. But I must emphasise that, you know, this is not historic. Like, what exists today is a different form, but it still exists today. Yeah, we have unfinished business um, and as well. Also, we didn't touch on sex discrimination, but that's um, one other element that has been heavily entrenched and obviously was part of politics as well, given how long it took to have any women elected to federal parliament. It took so long, uh, which is something that I was quite surprised by. Um, Just finally, in the conclusion, you do look at uh, the Labor Party as we see it today um, which I found particularly interesting given that you, I know, work for the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and, and focus your mind on history there as well. And you make some kind of comments and remarks and observations on the Labor Party and where it's ch- how it's changed, where it's moved to, and perhaps um, where some of these deficiencies are in terms of its ability to create a long-term vision. And, um, and you kind of draw in some of these learnings these historical learnings that we've gleaned from the book. Could you just perhaps um, briefly summarise your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, just let me clarify firstly that the, the book is a product of my work at the, uh, at the, the University of Melbourne, uh, not my other professional role at the ACT, which is a totally different thing. But um, as a citizen, as a historian, the work that I, what I was trying to say about the Labor Party is that I'm a deep believer in the ALP's continuing ability to be a positive transformative force in Australia um, and I hope that this book is very much seen as a you know as somebody who does believe in that tradition of a party that represents working people um, and you know it's modern Australia in all sort of different sort of forms that within the political system that there is still a capacity for big ideas big transformative change and for people who believe that Australia can be fairer and more decent and more equal to come together uh, through a party form like that and to actually have uh, the ability to transform the political system. But I don't think that the way the party has been going in recent decades has allowed it to do that. And I think that the, you know, the Labor Party has become uh, you know, a party which doesn't dream as big as it can uh, in recent years. And I don't think it's a party that has been as willing to you know, accommodate that sort of level of debates and disagreement and so on as it's had. Uh, in previous decades. And I do think that there's been a bit of a problem uh, in recent sort of decades, that there's been a a narrowing of who makes up the uh, parliamentary representatives of the Labor Party. That there's, you know, there is definitely the case that there's more and more people who are professional politicians. Now, that's not bad per se. Like, you know, politics is a difficult business. People who've been working professionally in politics have a whole range of skills which can positively contribute to uh, making political change. But when that is as dominant as it is, it becomes a real problem. And so one of the things I say in the book is, you know, there's uh, the modern working class is much, much broader and very, very different to what it used to be, but it needs to be more representative within the Labor Party. So, you know, for instance, to put it very bluntly, I would love to see more nurses in Parliament mm. because I think that that closer connection to, you know, labouring people um, and their direct experiences is something which is very, really important for the Labor Party because, as with Curtin and Scullin has demonstrated, they drew upon their experience as working people uh, to then think about the world, to then question the world that they lived in, and then to use that to develop a platform for change. And I think that you know, what we see right now is that the blunt reality uh, that we've all been uh, revealed, many of us knew this anyway, is that it is working people who make the world work. And I don't think you can look at anything that's happened during this pandemic and not see that the people who've been on the front lines, the people who've been uh, at, you know, most clearly understanding the dynamics of what's been happening and what needs to be done, 
are working people, essential workers, as the term has been recently. And it needs to be said, drawing to your previous point, disproportionately women who have been uh, in the positions of work who have been at the front lines of this crisis and then who have continued to experience gender discrimination uh, and so on. Like Those experiences, the reality of life, what that means and how you change it, these are things that we need in our parliament. And so I think that's a sort of thing that it would be wonderful if uh, there was more and more working people who were being elected into... Uh, Parliament, or you can distill it all very, very quickly about my ideas on where the Labor Party and other political parties need to go, which is we need more nurses in Parliament. <laughs> well, thank you for and that. We need, and we need more cleaners. And we need yes. more um, you know, people from a whole variety of different parts of life who have not been appreciated for the work that they do, for the understanding that they have, and for the skills that they have, which have not been mobilised simply because they don't you know, occupy parts of uh, you know, professional realms that other people appreciate. But as we've seen now, they are vital, they are essential, they are the people who make the world work. People like this should be in Parliament and having being able to contribute to the running of our country in a more direct way. I couldn't agree more. Um, congratulations, Liam, on this book and also on gaining your PhD in history at the University of Melbourne. And um, no, doubt that, no doubt you've found even more areas to look into now that you've um, discovered or further discovered the amazing early lives of these two men, John Curtin and James Scullin. And, uh, yeah, I do hope that you, um, gosh, enjoy the rest of your historical research. Well, thank you very much. It's um being a historian is wonderful uh, because it's possibly one of the most nerdiest things that you can do, but it means that you just get to spend your life sort of talking stories about extraordinary people who've tried to change uh, change the world. I mean, you know, that's a, it's a pretty wonderful thing to be able to engage with and to think about. And, mm. you know, but one of the things that I think is most important about the story is that Curtin and Scullin at this time were called so-called ordinary people when they were young. You know, this term ordinary, which I find really weird because I only ever tend to meet extraordinary people who want to change the world. But, you know, this, the real story is that people who come together for a social movement who want to change the world can do so. And that's a, a message which is, you know, it's from their time, but it's directly relevant to us as well, is that the way things are are not the way they've always been or always have to be. And there's always the possibility for change if people believe in it enough, come together and work for it enough. Sometimes mm. it can take a long period of time, but you can change the world. And that's, a, you know, that's the message that I think is the most enduring from their time to us. Yeah, it's living proof. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Liam, uh, for chatting with us. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're going to be speaking now with marine biologist Sarah Laverick and she has written a book called Through Ice and Fire, The Adventures, Science and People Behind Australia's Famous Icebreaker, Aurora Australis. And that is in the context of the fact that it was actually World Oceans Day yesterday and uh, you certainly might be aware that I'm a bit of a fan of marine life and oceans and we had a lovely chat um, with Simon Montgomery about the uh, soul of an octopus a few weeks ago. So following up on that, we are talking about this fascinating topic with Sarah Laverick, who I welcome now on the phone. And thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
I'm so glad we get a chance to connect in and talk about this topic. Um, and you are in a kind of rare group of people who have had the privilege of voyaging on the Aurora Australis, and it's not something that the average Australian might get to do. Um, so I wonder, in terms of your um, personal experience and, and voyages and association with the Aurora Australis, uh, when did that start and in what capacity? Um, well, I, my first voyage was back in 2003-04 season um, and I'd begun working at the Australian Antarctic Division in about 2002 and so I was very lucky to be able to go south on the Aurora Australis as a marine biologist about a year and a half later. And so, I mean, this is one of the elements that is um, so special about the Aurora Australis because it houses or, um, you know, transports a really wide and diverse range of professionals with differing purposes and aims. Um, and it depends, obviously, on, on which voyage um, as to what kind of mix or um, types of people are there. But no doubt science is one of the main aims. On your voyages, um, when you were over there in your capacity as a marine biologist, what were some of the areas that you were looking at and why did you particularly, um, you know, go to Antarctica to, um, I guess, delve into these areas? <laughs> well, you're right. So a lot of um, work the Aurora Australis did was to do with science, but she's a multi-purpose vessel, so there were specific voyages which had logistic aims and uh, other aims to do with getting personnel down to the continent, so the bases um, at Mawson, Casey, Davis and at Macquarie Island. Um, but yes, so I got to go on marine science voyages and um, my area of expertise is marine mammals, so um, whales and seals, um, and I went on my first voyage to be a marine mammal observer um, to the sub-Antarctic, really remote islands called Heard Island. It's sort of in the middle of the southern Indian Ocean, basically. Yeah, and it is a really interesting kind of area because um, there are some particularly remote parts. I mean, it already is remote, but <laughs> there are some parts that are more remote. Um, and I also wonder, when you were going on these voyages, at what season were you going in? Were there the seasons where um, things got a little bit crazy and hectic, which you outline in the book? Um, I didn't experienced some of the really hectic and crazy things that have happened on this ship, um, but I've certainly had my fair share of eye-opening moments on board. Um, it is an amazing experience sailing on the Aurora Australis. Um, the first thing that anybody does, regardless of what your role is, is, is um, travel in the transit the Southern Ocean, um, which is an experience in itself. And on most voyages, not all, but on most, you experience the full might of the Southern Ocean as you cross it. Um, so that, that is an experience in itself, um, being on board a ship in the middle of the ocean, heaving seas, um, the ship moving around, you know, quite alarmingly for people that have not been before. I think after a few voyages you get used to it, but on that first voyage it's incredible. Um, and then I've had, you know, smaller experience where, experiences where um, something might have um, out of the ordinary might have happened during the voyage. Like um, on one of my voyages, there was a problem um, with the um, 
the steering system on the ship. Very, it was a very quick problem, but it meant that we got sideswiped with um, quite a huge swell, and the ship rolled a lot, and there were you know people injured downstairs. Um, but the ship's crew are amazing, and they're able to fix that problem within a matter of minutes and right the ship, and, and we, we sailed on. Yeah, so yeah. It, there's, a, um, there's a lot of experiences that people have um, that are out of the norm for, I guess, um, people who've never been south before. Um, but there's also been a lot of incidents, or not incidents, but events of this ship um, that have been quite incredible and amazing that, um, people have been able to overcome very serious problems on their ships, like fires or the settlements in ice and things. So I've been lucky enough not to be on a voyage that's involved <laughs> that. So this ship has been through a lot in her lifetime, and the crew and the ship together have been able to um, come out of some pretty hairy experiences relatively unscathed. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think some of these experiences that uh, people have had on the Aurora Australis and no doubt it probably um, helps to bond people together if you're um, sharing some pretty crazy, scary experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of some of those really significant events that you you cover in the book um, and you've just mentioned their besetment. What is mm-hmm. a besetment and what was kind of the most extreme example of um, the Aurora Australis experiencing that and um, and what, what happened? Okay, well, a besetment is another way for saying a ship is stuck in ice um, and on the voyage that I focus on, um, the particular voyage that I talk about with the besetment I, I focus on, um, the ship was stuck for a number of um, weeks, not just because the ice in Antarctica, the sea ice, had closed in around the ship. That was part of the problem. But they also had a, um, a failure of the propeller system, which meant, meant that they were well and truly stuck. Um, so they had um, have, they were quite far south in an area called Pitt Bay, and a big storm had pushed in a lot of ice in behind them, which normally wouldn't be a massive issue. Could could mean they get stuck for a little while, but this issue with the propeller meant that they were very, very stuck behind miles and miles of sea ice with no obvious way of getting out of that. So um, then the ship's engineers basically came to the rescue over a number of weeks. They managed to fix a problem that um, the propeller shaft systems manufacturers had said would be impossible to repair at sea. So the engineers and crew on the Aurora are incredibly uh, talented and they're really good at thinking outside the box and they were able to work out a way to circumvent the problem, basically, that the ship had, uh, that had pretty much paralysed the entire ship. And they managed to get the Aurora out of the the ice that had surrounded it um, weeks later, but they managed to do that under her own steam, which Mm. is pretty incredible. It is incredible because I do remember um, reading about other besetments um, that have been experienced by countries not not like ours, but they get stuck in the ice and then they have to wait for another icebreaker to come along and actually save them, um, which does seem like that is, you know, quite scary putting the fate um, of your 
ship in the hands of another country. Uh, but it is interesting how, given um, the territorial arrangements in Antarctica, that there is um, some form of of kind of teamwork um, at some level between the countries and um, their ability to support each other in some of these extreme events. Yeah, they do. The Antarctic Treaty um, means that uh, there's a whole bunch of nations that agree to the Antarctic Treaty, basically, and that um, is focused around a number of things, about the protection of the ecosystem itself, freedom of scientific investigation, you know, regardless of the nation's politics. And this um, sort of camaraderie of that help will always be given to those in need um, in Antarctica, because often the only only organisations that are able to come to the aid of somebody in distress or a program in distress are other international Antarctic programs because they're the only ones in that in that very remote region. Uh, so there is a, a very strong international camaraderie between those programs to assist other national Antarctic programs if something you know, bad happens, mm. um, which is really nice in this day and age to have that... Um, coordination and cooperation between nations regardless of politics. Yeah, it is. It is a kind of rare um, occurrence at the moment and certainly <laughs> people becoming more and more unilateral in their behaviour. Um, one of the other parts to this is a besetment, but also you talk about a 2016 blizzard, which was also really significant. And it made news headlines at the time um, with an image, you know, circulating around the globe of um, the Aurora Australis, which is painted orange, um, but I believe was covered in snow. Um, what is the experience or what's the difference in experience between a besetment and a blizzard? Well, I mean, a blizzard happens quite regularly. Um, especially for resupply voyages where you're down on the continent and you can experience those catabatic winds, you know, these frozen winds rushing off the continent itself. Um, so blizzards are actually relatively common down south. Um, but what happened um, with this one was that uh, the Aurora was at a station at Mawson doing a resupply and it was moored in Horseshoe Harbour there. And then the blizzard was a really strong blizzard, like it was an um, unusually harsh blizzard, um, which then caused the Aurora to break her mooring lines when she was um, moored in the harbour. And it's quite a small harbour. So then um, the Aurora became basically at the mercy of the blizzard at that point, and the blizzard then pushed the ship against the rocks and, and drove her against the rocks um, at West Arm in Horseshoe Harbour. So pretty incredible event. event. Um, is the grounding itself, um, and that's quite different. So that was the ship basically on the rocks in Antarctica, um, which is really dangerous, you know, in terms of her hull and water potentially coming in and all that sort of thing. And that's a, a slightly, you know, a different scenario from being stuck in ice, although ice can create pr pressure against the ship's hull and things and it has its own dangers, but... A grounding um, is quite different from a besetment in that um, it literally means the ship has gone to ground. And in that particular, in that scenario, it was uh, very scary because it was in the middle of a massive blizzard. So uh, it was, it was very. I think there were. Well, I know there were a lot of very, very worried people on board. They were worried for their lives and they were worried for the safety of their ship. Mm. But um, 
but very luckily, um, the Aurora, well, Aurora was still incredibly strong and that strength protected her in this instance. She was horrendously rent with big dents and scrapes and everything from the rocks of West Arm and the forces of the blizzard. But because she was so strong and built so well with her whole plating and her design, she was able to withstand that. And, um, and she and all of her passengers uh, survived that very, very scary incident. Yeah, and um, it's interesting the the kind of importance of the structure and its strength and um, design is an issue or a, a great feature throughout the book because obviously you've mentioned there two examples of um, you know times when things have gone wrong unexpectedly, but there's also been as you said fire um, that's yeah. affected the ship. Uh, how has it? How has the structure of the ship? Um, been affected and has it really held up across the years of its service? Well, I think in those examples of um, being beset or groundings, um, the ship has had sort of, I guess, the equivalent of surgery to fix sections of the ship that were badly damaged at the time. So in terms of her overall structure from those events, um, she's come out of that relatively unscathed. I think the main issue with a ship like the Aurora Australis or any icebreaker is actually the physical forces imposed on the ship just from icebreaking, from the from the energy and the um, strength of the ice. So the energy required to get through the ice causes a lot of vibrations when you're icebreaking, you know, obviously a lot of pressure against that hull and I think it's more the issue of 30 years of sort of relentless ice breaking that um, is more of an issue for an ageing ship than the major incidents actually that the Aurora has been through which is quite interesting. Mm. Well it's a very long period of service I would assume Mm. for such a heavy duty activity um, to be undertaken. You talk about the fact that uh, your husband's grandfather, father and uncle built the Aurora Australis. Um, They owned the shipyard where it was built. And when you were speaking to Don and Maureen Laverick, they still had a number of items from the time when the ship was built. Um, Mm. It's really interesting that you say you met your husband on your second voyage and you now have that familial connection with the creation of the Aurora Australis. Um, I wonder how your family connections um, helped inform the writing of this book but then also a kind of connection with the the ship um, when you have gone through this extensive research process of seeking to understand its history and the many relationships and connections that people have to it. Yeah, well, I think it was. I was very lucky, I guess, to find myself in that situation. Um, I didn't know when I met my husband Andrew that his family built the Aurora Australis, even though he was one of the officers on board. Um, he never broadcast that information. Mm. Um, not quite sure why. He was very quiet and shy about that. And so it was only um, months later, really, that I that he told me about that. Um, and we were together for, well, we got married, um, we lived in Tasmania for a number of years, and then um, once we had our two boys, we moved back to New South Wales, to Newcastle, which is where his family is from. And it was sort of at that point, because his grandfather, Don, knew that I'd sail on the ship as a marine biologist, 
and knew I was interested in the ship, he started telling me these stories about what it was like to construct that ship at Carrington Swiftways. And and it was sort of an ongoing conversation that would happen at every sort of family gathering, whether it was a barbecue or a birthday or something. He would tell me a story about something that had gone wrong during the Aurora's construction. And every single time it was a different story. And they some of them seemed, you know, incredibly, you know, interesting, like from a local perspective, um, you know, relating to the Newcastle earthquake and things but some really unexpected problems that they had during construction. And after a while, I thought, you know, he'd start telling me the story and I'd think that, oh, I've heard this before, surely. And I know it would be yet another randomly crazy story of something that had happened during the ship's construction. And because I had sailed on her quite a few times myself and had that familiarity with the ship and what she does, it really became obvious to me you know, quite quickly through those um, discussions with Don, what a story this ship really has throughout her whole life and what she'd overcome even as early as, you know, during construction. And that sort of triumph over adversity really kind of resonates through um, her whole story, which I think is amazing. Um, so I think that that link with both the family and knowing what happened during her construction and then my own experiences on board and then hearing, you know, stories the crew would tell us um, on board of things that had happened really allowed me to have a, um, a very holistic view about that ship. And I was very lucky because I used to work at the Antarctic Division. You know, I know a lot of people that still work there and they were very supportive of this project and... Um, you know, they've got a wealth of knowledge about things that I weren't, wasn't quite so familiar with in terms of engineering or in terms of some of the detailed, like, atmospheric sciences and things like that. So I was really lucky to find myself in that position where I had um, access to her history and her um, current um, situation and the science that she was doing in that time because she was still operating when I started this project. And then, you know, the Antarctic Division were really supportive, so they were, you know, um, helping me through her, her latter years as well and providing me with a lot of information about what she was doing and things. So it was it was a very long project. It took about four years all up, and there was a lot of going through archives and um, media clippings and all sorts of things that I was able to access through all these different avenues, and it was incredible. It was so interesting, and it was a, a real honour, I think, for me, um, because I have such a bond with this ship, to be able to do this project. Um, but something that really became obvious while I was doing it as well was the bond that everybody seems to have with this ship. Everyone that sailed on her or has had something to do with this ship really has an emotional connection to the Aurora Australis. And I, it became really obvious to me that I am not the only one that feels such strong affection for the ship. Um, and that was a really lovely little mini discovery from myself to make um, as an individual to realise that I'm part of this quite big community who all love this ship quite genuinely. Yeah, yeah, it's a really beautiful thing. And it, 
the amount of research you've done definitely shows because it is a really comprehensive picture um, and really gives it that detail, but also um, the human element to this story is really strong. Um, I want to touch on some of the significant milestones that the Aurora Australis has had. Um, in the concluding chapter, you talk, you talk and write about the fact that um, it conducted over 150 voyages across 30 years of its history um, and it had its 30th birthday on the 18th of September 2019. Um, Mm -hmm. So clearly it's still 30, it hasn't hit 31 and it Mm -hmm. probably won't um, because its last voyage um, has just occurred, hasn't it? Yeah, the last voyage was earlier this year, her last Antarctic voyage, Mm. that is. um, She's been retired from the Australian Antarctic program now, um, and they're waiting for their new ship, the Noina, to be finished being built and delivered um, to Hobart. But um, it's a bit unknown at the moment what the fate of the Aurora will be, um, and there's a lot of uncertainty around that, and I guess a bit of anxiety in that in that community that loves his ship so much because we're not entirely sure what will happen at this point. Yeah, I was really surprised um, to see, I think it was on Twitter maybe, that I saw Andrew Wilkie uh, tweeting about this issue and putting out a press release last Friday about um, his efforts with uh, the Foundation to prevent the Aurora Australis from being being, um, kind of taken down, dismantled and sold um, for scrap metal overseas. And that is Mm -hmm. one of the possible outcomes for the Aurora Australis. It's not the one that Andrew Wilkie wants, um, Mm -hmm. being an independent senator in Tasmania. He is very much um, lobbying with others to the uh, Tasmanian state government, but also the federal government and the owner around what will be done, what the future is for the Aurora Australis. What are mm. some of the ways that it could be used? Um, and what what are your personal thoughts about um, how you think the Aurora Australis should be treated in, in the future? Should we be retain, <laughs> retaining it and using it in some way or um, appreciating it for its historical significance? Yeah, well, I mean... There, initially, when the Aurora was sort of about to be retired, it sort of sounded like Pano had felt that they, they, well, they felt that she had useful life left in her. So sort of, I think that a number of people were hoping that maybe she would find a place in another international Antarctic program or something, because it's easier, I guess, for budget-wise, better, mm-hmm. I guess, to renovate an older ship than to purchase or um, build a new ship. Um, so they sort of initially thought, oh, well, maybe something like that will happen and she'll have a, a, a further life with another program or you know, something like that. Um, but we really haven't heard much um, along those lines since then. And, um, and I guess there is that real concern that, you know, it, it would be really quite... Um, disappointing, I guess, if the, the ship was just dis- dismantled for scrap um, and sold for scrap metal, essentially, because there are other avenues, you know, in terms of education and awareness and things. Um, there is a, um, a, a a new foundation called the, I think it's the Aurora Australis Foundation in Hobart, a charitable foundation, and they're trying to um, 
arranged for the Uluru to become a like floating museum in Hobart, which has all sorts of possibilities there with education and things and awareness about Antarctica that I was talking about. So there, there are um, other options for the ship which come with problems. So I guess the problem with doing a museum is you need to find somewhere for the ship to tie up and you need to maintain it and you need to... Um, I guess, modify the ship to make it appropriate as a museum. But they're all surmountable problems. They come at a cost, but it's it's surmountable. And I think um, she has a value in that kind of role as well. So there are other options other than scrapping her, and I personally would love to see her as a museum or have useful life elsewhere. I think it would be, um, you know, a, a bit of a waste to see her sold, sold as scrap, and I sincerely hope that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's really, um, I think you could say it's priceless in a way and you can't put a dollar value on something like the Aurora Australis in its kind of cultural significance, but also its scientific significance and um, importance to Australia's history and Antarctica's history. Um, And I know that uh, the Australian Maritime Maritime Museum in Sydney um, has been helping that group with their proposal um, for Mm -hmm. a potential museum a floating museum so it is um it's really surprising to think that the first or the the main kind of um option to to retain the ship isn't necessarily the one that might end up eventuating um because certainly from my perspective I would have thought that would be the first plan for a government is to keep something so substantial and significant to not only Hobart and Tasmania's history but the nation's history Absolutely. I mean, it's the only icebreaker ever had to have been constructed in Australia. So in that, just in that perspective alone, she's mm. unique. But she's got all of her, um, you know, all her science facilities, um, her links, just her links to Antarctica. I think people still, uh, that resonates still with people. Um, if you go to Hobart and she's tied up alongside, it's, not a day goes by we don't see at least a dozen people having their photo taken in front of that ship um, on the on the wharf. Um, people do realise and appreciate that link with Antarctica, that link with you know the this vast and wild wilderness that we're still learning about. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, scientific and even political. Um, educational resources that could be tied in with all of that. So there's so much potential for something like that to happen. Um, It's just whether or not, um, I guess, she's considered as having use or purpose elsewhere. Um, And that is ultimately up to P&O as a commercial venture, but hopefully um, they can, you know, it can be an attraction to commercially to have her as something like that. Yeah, certainly um, political will is another element that needs to be there too. So um, people can certainly voice their opinion and displeasure if you don't want it to be turned into scrap metal um, by lobbying your own parliamentarians. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to talk with us and giving us your personal insights into the Aurora Australis and as well as talking us through this wonderful book that you've written through Ice and Fire. Thank you very much for having me again. It's been lovely. I love talking about this ship, so it's nice. (laughs) It shows. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast.
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.